Blair Palmer and welcome to the Punks in Suits podcast, inspiring you to take the lead and be a force for change in your industry, your organization and your own life. It's about being endlessly curious, making a difference, connecting with your purpose and with yourself and taking the brilliant gamble of releasing the punk underneath your suit. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Punks in Suits podcast. I hope you are very well and I hope you're taking some time this week to relax, to enjoy the company of people you love and give your brain a little rest. That's really important because about half a million people in the UK suffered from work-related stress, anxiety or depression in 2016-17. 12.5 million working days were lost as a result. Occupational stress is the greatest cause of stress in the United States amongst adults. One study in the USA earlier this year said that 40% of US workers describe their job as very or extremely stressful. Workload, tight deadlines, too much pressure and a lack of managerial support are the main reasons people feel this way. And then there's the low level stress, people who are still functioning, they're not saying they're depressed or suffering from stress, but day to day are tolerating these very high levels of workload and tight deadlines. Personally, I don't think this is sustainable. Stress levels are on the rise. There's no evidence that that trend is going to change anytime soon and very little is being done about it. Companies are concerned of course but they also have their targets to reach and their shareholders to satisfy. Increasingly I'm seeing individuals take the situation into their own hands. Rather than waiting for their company to rethink how they make the most of their human beings, the human beings that work for them, individuals are asking a question. Can I carry on like this? They, like me, are questioning whether there's something inherent in the industrial age norms of the working world that's bad for our mental and spiritual well-being. And rather than waiting for the world to change, they're changing their own working world. Just over a year ago on this podcast, I interviewed Leandra Ashton. Leandra is a very successful actress, playwright, founder of the Flying Cloud Theatre Company and long-term friend of mine. We've been friends for a very, very long time. Leandra had been suffering from chronic fatigue. She'd basically lost a year of her life as she attempted to recover step by step from this condition. And in our interview, we talked about her career and what had taken her up to this point and how she realised that something fundamental had to change. This week I want to bring you that interview again. It was the first interview I did for the show, absolutely one of my favourites. I found Leandra hugely inspiring. I always have done, I still do, but I thought that this interview um, was the perfect demonstration of why she's someone who is who's a real inspiration. And, and I think one of the things I got from this conversation was that You can look at someone from the outside and you can see how beautiful they are and how successful they are and how lovely, just lovely they are and not realise that what they're putting, that they're putting too much in, that they're not leaving any space for themselves. 
So I'm going to share this interview with you again. I'm also going to replay another interview for you next week, uh, another one of my favourites. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. But for now, I hope that listening to this conversation with Leandra inspires you to think over the coming days and weeks about what kind of 2018 you want for yourself. Leandra, so good to talk to you. I'm really delighted that we could find this opportunity to do this. Absolutely, total pleasure. Let's start because I've known you for a long time. In fact, I remember when I first met you and I was giving a speech at some event, I think it was a coaching event in London and you were in the audience. We had a lovely chat after and I just knew that we were going to be we were going to know each other forever. <laughs> so far, <laughs> that's kind of what's happened, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and probably what you don't know is that I, that was my very first coaching event I'd ever been to. And I turned up with um, homemade business cards because I didn't have any money to have business cards printed. So I was, uh, I was kind of, it was smoke and mirrors, but it was obviously <laughs> quite a convincing smoke and mirrors <laughs> because you believed in me. It was like, okay, let's, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we need to find a way. And it was my sister-in-law who said, get yourself to that coaching event, make some business cards, go and tell people what you're doing. And um, and that's when I met you, and it did change a lot. But you're not, I mean, you weren't, you've never been a sort of full-time coach. Maybe you can explain a little about what got you to that point and, and what happened after that, a bit about your background. Oh, yeah, so, um, well, I, I trained as an actor, um, and from a very, very young age, literally from the moment I could speak as a child, it was, I'm going to be an actor. I want to be an actress. The sort of plotted history is I, I first of all did a degree, went to Cambridge, did a, um, a degree in modern languages, modern and medieval languages, because the advice I was given, having gone to a very kind of uh, normal, comprehensive school, was, yeah, don't don't be an actor, be a teacher. Um, okay, you're bright, maybe you can get into one of these top universities and um, I didn't really know what was coming my way but I knew that Emma Thompson had gone to Cambridge and I thought okay well that that might be my route so I went to Cambridge to do languages to become an actress which sounds so backwards but <laughs> but that that was kind of my thinking at the time and um, and it was amazing um, it was an amazing experience and I think that in a way my time there set the tone for pretty much the rest of my life, which was, you know, you can, you can achieve anything you set your mind to, and um, squeezing all the acting, all the productions, the, the writing, the producing, the directing, the acting, around a really intense degree, and so kind of absolutely charging at life for these very intense eight-week terms. But then, of course, coming out of my degree, not an actress. <laughs> I had lots of experience, but strangely enough I hadn't been discovered you know which was this thought coming from a, a small northern comprehensive background that I thought you know somehow I'd be discovered when I got to Cambridge so I'd always known about this place uh rather you know from a young age I knew that this was this was an amazing drama school and and I auditioned um and got in so that was that was quite a big moment so I so I, I've worked as an actor for a long time, since 2004 is when I graduated, and worked on stage and, and done TV and done bits of films, but then got to the point where I was just so frustrated waiting for the phone to ring and being in that passive role of the agent kind of having all the control, I, I just, I, I'd had enough. 
uh, you know, money was super tight, uh, going in and out of acting jobs, doing every other job under the sun that you can imagine to kind of pay a rent in London. And I just thought, okay, I've had enough of this. Really frustrated with the roles I was being sent up for as a woman. And I thought, okay, well, either I quit complaining about this and do something else, or I try and change it. So I set up my own company uh, with the idea to produce a play uh, that I'd written. But alongside all this, I was trying to bring money in, which is where the coaching came in, which mm. was one of the, one of the jobs I, I kind of turned to. Because I just realized there was such such a crossover between the skills you you use as an actor and the skills that people need in the world, you know, to communicate, problem solve. So I, I kind of created a company that was that, that still does run workshops and produces theatre and the, the profits from the from the workshops, the sort of business workshops, go into producing new theatre. It was not a path I had imagined when I left RADA at all. You know, I'd kind of imagined something very, very different. But I, I suddenly found myself in, in, a, in a kind of coaching role and realizing that there was a real value in that. And I think it's when I met you, that's when I realized, oh, there is real value in this. You know, people do, do actually want this skill set to be sort of translated into other contexts. And you were, you know, you were, it was months after we met, actually, wasn't it? You called me up. And said, oh, I've got some work. And, and that kind of changed everything. Then I thought, no, I really can do this. And it was that. I, did, I, did, I worked with you guys before I set up the business side of my own company. So, so what I remember is that um, one of the ways that we worked together was working with groups of, of leaders, of professional people, helping them. So it was, in a way, dressed up as presentation skills training, but it, it really wasn't that, was it? It was much more about accessing some their, their sense of self, their confidence, so that they could deal with high-pressure, high-stress situations. And, of course, high-pressure, high-stress situations are pretty commonplace. I mean, it's not like once in a blue moon these guys would find themselves under pressure and they'd have to draw on the 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 skills and the awareness that, that you and I had taught them, they were in that situation every day, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where the acting skills could really come in because, you know, as an actor, I know what it's like to have to stand up in front of a huge auditorium full of people or maybe a tiny little black box theatre or an audition and have to really come up with the goods when you might feel totally unprepared. You know, you, you may have flown there from a you know your part-time job doing something else to pay the rent in order to carry on sustaining this this career and and that pressure of having to just suddenly perform and you know pull it out of the bag I think is a real actor skill set actually but you're right in in the sense that it's it it was wrapped up as presentation skills training but it went so much it goes so much deeper than that doesn't it because you're as soon as you start working with people in terms of how they're using their bodies and their voices, you're getting into really deep stuff, you know, real sort of psychological traits and, and beliefs that are then manifesting physically and vocally. So it's, it's, it's a, I love the work. I, I think it's an incredible way to work with people. It's almost like psychotherapy without psychotherapy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And it's, it's so physical and practical. I mean, some of the things that we used to do 
you know, the the breathing and the making noises, yeah. you know, and and some meditation and some quite, you know, using the body, how awareness of the body. And, and I know that we'll come back to this theme of yoga, but even in, at that time, yoga was a big part of your life and something that you brought into the workshops that we were doing. Mm. If you think back then, how important was some of the stuff that you were doing around the outskirts, some of the kind of self-care and self-development that you were doing that was enabling you to to do what you did um, with your company, Flying Cloud, um, and, and produce this this extraordinary theatre company. The yoga was something that I came to when I was touring the States uh, with, with two plays, working for a company called Aquila in New York. And I was playing Rosalind, which is the, the largest Shakespeare female, female role. And we were doing As You Like It, where I was playing Rosalind, and then we were doing um, an Ibsen play. And they they were both really intense plays. And not only the, the shows themselves, but the travel that went around the the work. We traveled 32 states of America. And and I knew <laughs> that I really needed something to ground me and help me look after myself. And and my my then boyfriend, my now husband, bought me um, DVDs. These DVDs one, one Christmas and said, you know, maybe these will, will help. And it was the yoga. It was the, the yoga in America that doing these DVDs and then going to classes in America. And it, I just thought, God, this is amazing. This is... And it, I'd never, I'd never kind of connected to yoga in that way before. Maybe, maybe because I hadn't needed it as much before. I, I you know, I remember a, a teacher at RADA doing a little bit of yoga with us, and I thought, what's the point of this? You know, <laughs> 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 to ache my arms a heck of a lot. The downward dog. I was like, this is just painful. You know, <laughs> this is not a rest pose. This is impossible. Um, and and just not getting it, just not getting it at all. Just thinking it was a bit slow and pointless really um and then suddenly being on tour and the yoga was oh it was just a lifeline you know it helped with with all the traveling with you know intense working relationships with a small group of people who who we were you know who i was touring with um and and we quite a few of us ended up doing yoga regularly before each show it was the thing that grounded us and helped us arrive and and prepare for the shows. The kind of the things that were going on around the yoga was massive, and then it was so nice to bring it into the workshops and to share that with people with, with the workshops that we did together. And then I think what's so amazing though is that the the yoga somehow I just forgot about it. It just got to the the bottom of my priority list and the bottom of the pile. And and in the midst of you know running a company trying to do a million and one things. I stopped doing it. Oh, I didn't do it as regularly. I did it here and there. And that was so foolish. <laughs> so, so foolish. Because it was giving me so much and it was keeping, you know, allowing me to achieve a lot as well. But then without it, I just, it had a, I think that was one of the things that had a big serious impact on me um, was, was kind of giving up the yoga and not having that really solid pillar of self-care to sort of prop everything up. I, mean, I think this is quite common, isn't it? So we we discover something, maybe exercise, maybe a, a healthy eating 
regime, maybe just drinking water, maybe not watching TV every night and reading a book instead or getting early nights, these things that we're all told to do. And we find the one that really works for us, the one or two that really works for us, and we do it, and we get amazing results. And then for some reason, we stop doing the thing that makes it possible for us to do all the other things. And I'm, I'm really interested in why you think... I mean, you got busy, basically, didn't you? So having, having been someone who was sitting waiting for your agent to ring you, you then were working with RADA, running sessions with them. You were for business. You were doing some work with us. You were, your play was being produced and was getting, was touring, right? So it was a play that I wrote and I directed it. So it was a, it, this is a big thing. It had taken sort of years to get to. So we were opening a West Yorkshire Playhouse and then we were touring. And, and then since then, there's been another play. So there's been plays and there's been big education projects all around it, offering free education workshops um, along the themes of the plays that, that we produced. So, yeah, it was seriously busy. So it was all that stuff and all the theatre stuff. And then there was all the business stuff, mm. <laughs> all the business workshops. Um, and then there's just life, isn't there? I mean, there's this, there's this other whole part that we seem to forget about, you know, family and relationships and and then ourselves and, and I think we just get squeezed squeezed out and I and I remember there were the, you know several points where I was thinking why do I find it so hard just to sit down and do some yoga or meditate like I know it's so good for me I know it really helps me why why am I not doing it and and I really kind of um was aware of it and I, and I wondered if it was something about almost like self-sabotage or almost not loving yourself enough to give yourself what you need, um, knowing that, that that's what I need, so I'm not going to give it to myself. I, it was a, the weirdest thing, because I don't know why we do it. And, and I, think, I think in particular women are very guilty of this. We, the thing that's good for us gets to go to the bottom of the pile, and we think of everybody else's needs and wants before our own. Do you have something that you know is really good for you that you don't do? Oh, so many things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like you, I know that yoga is really good for me, and I also know that meditation is really good. And I have had periods of time where I have meditated, did kind of stuff on the Internet, you know, nothing hugely serious, but a, a 10, 15-minute meditation that I've found online every day, and I've done it every morning before I start work, before I open the emails, and it really sets me up for the day. And then I just stop doing it. Yeah. And I, I feel it is about being busy um, and, or feeling too busy, feeling like I'll just check my emails first and that will set me up for the day. And by the time you've done that, you, you know, you're not going to meditate after that because you're dragged into this kind of adrenaline-y. Yeah. You, know, you know, that's making me wonder if, if it is an addiction. So yeah. if the adrenaline is an addiction and that yoga or meditation or any of these other things help us to break that addiction, mm. but it doesn't take much. It's like an alcoholic with one glass mm. of wine or something. It it doesn't take much for us to be back into the addiction and then we have to withdraw from it again. Mm. That's really hard to do. 
I think that's a brilliant theory, and and I, that that I would really relate to that because I think my whole life I've been living off adrenaline. Um, until last year when I had a total collapse. But I think, and I think there is an element of addiction to it. You, you, you're, you're rushing around so much and it becomes the norm and you're living at this really heightened state. And actually, when you've got that much adrenaline in your body, you kind of feel high, don't you? You're sort of like, you sort of feel invincible because that's what adrenaline is supposed to do for us, isn't it? It's supposed to give us that fight or flight um, and protect us, but um, but I do think modern life we we have become so adrenalized. Our lives are so adrenalized. There seems to be less time, more um, connections, uh, constantly connected either to your phone, to your computer, um, and and then where's this? Where's the stillness? Where's the space? Where's that? Where's that period where you just disconnect and you yeah, like you like you were saying, without the adrenaline, just with yourself. And, and I mean, you, you mentioned it in passing there, but if, if we'd have been having this conversation a couple of years ago, it would have been a different interview. It would have been an interview about how to make it. Here's Leandra, and she's made it. She's got a successful theater company. She's running these education workshops. She's giving something back to society. She works with RADA, successful actress, you know, beautiful human being. Um, you know, that would have been the, the interview. And we would have been talking about tips and tricks and things you'd done and how you'd networked and how you'd got your play in a proper theater, you know, with a, with a great audience coming and taking it around the country. That would have been the interview. But as you mentioned there, you, it became too much, right, at a certain point. And, and maybe, you can, maybe you can talk a little bit about what happened. Yeah. Um, well, I've been doing a lot of international travel. I was, I'd been in Italy. Um, delivering workshops to a big fashion house in Italian, and they were that was intense. And then I was, um, you know, living out of a suitcase, which I have been doing for most of my career because as an actor you travel all over the place. But that was kind of there again, a lot of living out of suitcases. And then it's kind of when I realised something wasn't quite right, it was was on holiday. My husband and I had this lovely holiday in Italy. I said, God, I'm just so tired. I'm just so, so, so tired. And and we thought, well, maybe it's just kind of relaxation. You know, you're sort of getting in touch with, with tiredness and it's been accumulating. And so just had this really lazy two-week holiday in the sun, but, but needed to sleep a lot. And then got back to the UK and started back on with the workshops. I was running a workshop down in London with, uh, with a young group in Bermondsey about teenage pregnancy. And... My body just went. I just, I had no energy at all. When I got home, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I, it was an effort to even get up the stairs. To get up or down the stairs was like climbing a mountain. To make a cup of tea just felt like you were asking me to do brain surgery. Um, I couldn't do anything. And I, I saw the doctors, you know, went to see different GPs, and I said, oh, I'm just exhausted. And, you know, immediately they, they said, you know, it's, um, it's depression. I don't feel depressed. I feel exhausted. <laughs> you know, I, I, like, give me more than that, because there's something, you know, I know my body. I've worked with my body my whole life performing, and I, something is the matter with my body. And um, 
and you know different GPs all said the same thing and said you know it's it's stress and and um, it's depression and then eventually found this great GP who was just happy it's always a way isn't it he just happened to be filling in for someone else and and he said it sounds like chronic fatigue and and it, I, when he said that I said no 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 <laughs> rather be diagnosed with having depression than with chronic fatigue because I know you know I've, I've read about chronic fatigue and and that I don't want that that's that's serious people don't know what that is it's this big kind of nebulous thing that that people don't really know what causes it and does it ever go away and but luckily there was a, a fatigue clinic here in York uh, where I live and they've been amazing a chronic fatigue clinic and I think it's only one of a couple in the country and so I've kind of been on this journey this last year of understanding exactly why my body just it was like the power plug just got pulled out of me and slowly slowly building up strength again and and it's been fascinating and the stuff that I've learned I think what was amazing is that a lot of it I knew already <laughs> you know because it's all in the workshops it's all stuff that I tell other people to do like you must you must rest and you must meditate and I wasn't doing it myself, and and it and I think with chronic fatigue there are different reasons that it comes along. Sometimes um, it is so under researched, and for some people it's a it's a virus that causes it. For other people it can be stress, and it's it, people still don't really know what causes it. But the whole system just goes down, and uh, it, there's, there's a dysfunction between all the different glands in the body. So it basically feels like you've got flu the whole time. So you're just dragging yourself through through the days and um the one thing that I, I kept on reminding myself of was a story that my dad used to always tell my brother and I it was our bedtime story and it was the hare and the tortoise and there was one day when I, I think oh, I've got to get outside and I couldn't even walk down the lane I couldn't get to the bottom of this very short lane and I just said to myself tortoise won the race <laughs> I was like plodding along like dragging myself along and and I thought, I've lived my life like the hare. I have charged around like a complete lunatic. And I've achieved a lot, you know, and, and people will say, God, you know, you've got amazing energy and you've done so much and how have you done it? And then I guess it just all finally caught up. And so I, I've been learning to be the tortoise, which is, which is not what, what you, well, certainly what I thought of was, the kind of the successful way to live, you know. You don't, you don't leave drama school or university or, or set out on your career thinking, "Oh, my aim is to become a tortoise and just to plod along." But wow, what what insight I have gained from sort of living my life like a tortoise for the last year and a and a bit. I mean, I want to talk about and and to hear from you what that's been like and what the what the lessons have been because I think that. We go back to this theme of adrenaline and pushing and making stuff happen and and energy. I mean, really, what people like you and I are known for, you know, one of the things that others seem to value in us is our energy. Mm. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And if we're talking about leadership, you know, those leaders that we tend to admire as a society, are those with lots of energy. And Hillary Clinton made a big deal about her energy 
in the um, debates in the run-up to the presidential election and, you know, all the places that she's been. And, of course, that is really impressive and it is really important in a president that they have energy, but we're all doing it. You know, you don't have to be the president of the United States to be required to be on all the time, to be answering your emails, to be taking phone calls, to be accessible on holiday. And the interesting thing you mentioned before about actors is that, yes, they have this adrenaline rush uh, before a performance. And the performance is, you know, a good two or three hours a day. And if they have a matinee, they're, you know, they're on stage for a lot of the day. But not 10 hours a day, not 12, 18 hours a day. And the same with athletes. You know, athletes have that, the training, and then they have that moment of performance, which might last 10 seconds or it might last three hours, but not 18 hours a day, six days a week. it's, It's inhuman, I think, this expectation that we would be on all the time, that we would be at our best and energetic. Absolutely. Feel that that's what you were expecting of yourself. Totally. Totally. And I think that all ties in with perfectionism as well. I think, you know, when you're the the grade A student and you've gone to these incredible institutions, you know, you're lucky enough to go somewhere like Cambridge and then to get a scholarship somewhere like RADA and and you you think, okay, well, you know, the expectations are pretty high and those expectations are coming from yourself more than anywhere else. Um, and there is this real sense, I think there was a real sense to me of, of perfectionism. It's like, okay, it's, it's got to be perfect. I've got to, I've got to do this. I've got to make everything of myself, which, which I think is, is, a, is an, an amazing quality in a, in a sense. And, and maybe there are other people in the world who need more of that, who, who, who need the bravery to just get up and, and do stuff. But if you're the type of person who is, who is the the grade A, the, okay, really conscientious, um, you know, bordering on complete perfectionist, then actually there needs to be the, you need to balance that with uh, the total being, with just being and stopping and, and, you know, it's good enough. Whatever you're doing is good enough rather than constantly pushing and striving. And, and I think it's got a lot, what I've realized is, I think it's got a lot to do with the world that we live in as well, as well as these expectations coming from ourselves. But, you know, we still live in a very patriarchal world. And these are very patriarchal qualities, aren't they? The sort of the pushing, the striving, the achieving, the efficiency as well, you know, fast. Everything's fast and speedy. And they're, they're very male qualities, you know, um, stereotypically male qualities. The sort of, if you're talking about yin and yang, you know, they're the yang qualities. It's the fire. It's the it's the it's the go. It's the push. Um, and I suddenly realized, God, where's the yin in my life? You know, where are those feminine qualities? Where's the the stopping, the receiving, the the reflecting, the kind of flowing, rather than this constant pushing? And and I don't know. Maybe it's because you know I am a woman, <laughs> but I've been living like a guy. And I think it's really hard to say that because I'm. And, and to understand it, because I'm such a feminist as well, and and I and I believe that you know men and women can can and should be able to have the same opportunities, but we're different beasts. We are actually very very different beasts, and and I think I've realised that about myself is that 
I have been thinking of myself as uh, like I I have the strength and the 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 straightness of a man, and I think this year has taught me wow that that life is actually quite curvy and that I can I can kind of flex as well you know and and find that that yin side of myself balance the yang that's always going to be there because that's a big part of me but where you know where's the yin in our lives I just I don't see it in the world I don't see it you know most of the time I'm working with men because I'm working in a corporate environment and I mean I was moderating a conference last week there were 70 people in the audience and four of them were women so I'm in these very male environments but you know I think that this kind of way of being, this way of living, is tough on men too. Um, maybe tough, maybe tough for different reasons. I, I couldn't possibly say I'm, I'm not a man and I can't imagine. Um, but I, I see the same desperation in, in the eyes of some of these guys to just let the mask drop a bit, just relax a bit, just go home and be with their families. And I wonder if in some ways it's even tougher because, you know, if, if a woman says, oh, yes, I do yoga or I meditate, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, okay, because that's a sort of women thing. And then when men say, yeah. I need a break, I need to go home and be with my kids, I, I'm going to, to yoga class, there's a little wry lifting of the eyebrow and a little smirk. I, I think it's... I think there's a huge amount of pressure on on all of us. Yeah, yeah I think you're. And right. having said that about women, actually, sometimes it's tougher for a woman to admit it because we're trying to um, we're trying to show that we don't need to, that we're just yeah. as strong, and we don't yeah. do the girly things. Yeah, we don't need to. So I I think there's a what all of this is is telling me is that um, it's pressure. It is some internal pressure, and sometimes we're trying to prove something to ourselves for sure. But I wonder if a lot of it is is a sense that we have to prove something to the world, that we have to prove that we have to be grateful for the opportunities that we've been given and as you say, make the most of them because we wouldn't want to waste them. Mm. I um remember saying to someone not very long ago so i am I'm, I'm embarking on this new journey i've got this allotment now um and we're going to move in the next year or two and have some land and and spend more time outside doing more sort of physical things and i remember saying to someone that one of the reasons i wanted to do that was i felt that my body was just here to carry my brain around yeah that that because i am educated um and have these qualifications that it would be a it would be disrespectful to that education uh, to use my body for anything. Um, and actually, why 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 would an intelligent, educated person be not allowed to do work that is physical um, and just use their body for carrying their brain around? And I I I, I feel that there is this expectation in society that there are the people that do things with their bodies and there are the people that do things with their minds. And if you've been educated and you've had a fancy education like you and I have, then we should be mainly using our brains to earn our living, not our bodies. And I think then what happens is that there's this real disconnect between the body and the mind. And 
and you know a lot of a lot of the work in my workshops you know talk about this about how the body is reflecting the stories in the mind and the and vice versa and why do we get so stuck in our heads and again i I think it comes back to this kind of yin yang idea and, and and it's almost like there's a dysfunction within our world at the moment where and you're right it's it's a it's a problem as much for men as it is for women um we're not allowed to have that the 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 the, the yin the connection with nature the connection with our bodies the um you know getting out of our heads and and touching the earth and feeling our bodies in the earth as part of the earth and and that i don't know we just seem to have come so far away from that so far away from that natural order of life where you know it we're not just like you said a, a brain walking around on a pair of legs but we get so stuck in our heads and and cerebral thoughts and um projects and planning um that we i think there needs to be some way of us getting back into our bodies and and i think when we do that then we connect back with nature and then you know the whole issue with the environment and the way that we treat our world I really think that when people get in touch with themselves and their bodies, then immediately there's a respect for the world because you, you, you realize you're part of it. You can't then be, you know, chucking rubbish into oceans and polluting, um, polluting the air because you're aware that you're, that's all part of you. But we, we've lost that connection, I think. I know you're already big into environmental things as well, aren't you, Blair? Mm. Yeah, and I, I do think that's, I do think that's right. And I wonder if one of the reasons we don't do it is because of the implications of doing it. So um, <clears throat> I was writing a piece yesterday for the, for the book about values and why, why it's difficult to look at your values and to really understand what they are. One of the reasons is that you might discover by looking at your values that you are living in a way that's out of sync with those values and that your lifestyle and the choices that you've been making are incompatible with your values. And you might have to live with that realization um, and do something. I mean, you might have to do something about it. But once you know that your values and your lifestyle are incompatible, it's much more difficult to, to live with those choices than when you're in ignorance. And I think that the same is true of, of what we've been talking about on a grander scale. So tell me about some of the things that you've been doing then over the last year and some of the practices that you've been incorporating into your life to get you to where you are now. I have been learning the art of stillness. Um, and my body made me learn it because it wasn't going anywhere. I couldn't do anything. I, I spent, you know, days just having to sit on the sofa or lie on the sofa and look out the window at the trees. Um, and, yeah, and it sounds so simple, but I used to find that impossible. I couldn't sit still. I always had to do something. You know, if I was sitting down, I was reading, or I was, um, you know, type, tapping something out on my phone, or but to actually sit and do nothing and just to stare... You know, what's the poem? A poor life, this is full of care. We have no time to stand and stare. That's basically been, that sort of sums up my year of of knowing that I can just be still and I can just sit outside and 
look at the birds and look at the clouds and look at the leaves and and I learned that because that was all I could do you know like I, I didn't even have the energy to read a book or to pick up my phone so you know sounds pretty terrifying probably to the average person and, and it was it was terrifying to start off with like I, ca- I can't do anything but then to embrace that you know to actually get to a point of okay this is where we're, where we are let's let's just embrace this and um and then what it teaches you you know wow you could spend a whole afternoon just looking at the clouds and just looking at the birds um and just what that made me aware of was just how much I packed into every single minute of the day. Um, you know, if I was sitting and I was eating, I used to be reading something or, or listening to something on the radio or I knew that I shouldn't be watching, you know, something on the laptop. I wouldn't have that, but there'd be other stimulus going in while I was eating um, and learning that, you know, it takes energy to digest your food and that my body had limited energy. So when I eat, there's a Buddhist phrase that I keep reminding myself when you eat eat and that's it <laughs> you're just gonna eat um and just basically simplifying absolutely everything and when I was doing one thing I was just doing that you know I wouldn't be on the phone and cooking up some food um I've learned routine I've learned to you know I've given myself a bedtime I've given myself a tea time stuff that I don't know if I've ever had in my whole life, you know, just to stop and think, okay, no, oh, it's it's five o'clock, I should stop working now, I'm going to start making some food, so I'll eat at six, because a big part of it was keeping my blood sugar level really balanced, so having to eat snacks, I have something to eat basically every two or three hours, um, so a snack and then a, a kind of a meal, so smaller meals throughout the day. I've got back to my creativity, I've got back to writing, I write every day now. And that has been such a joy because I was teaching people how to kind of be themselves and access their creativity, and yet I was totally ignoring my own. So in the course of a year, I don't even know how many... I've written books. I've got like about five or six, um, you know, notebooks that are just full of writing, and and surprisingly lots of poetry came out of that. Um, Loads of poems just kind of bubbled up out of nowhere. Um, which just felt so joyous and so unexpected. And, you know, some of those poems were pretty dark, but it was just helping me to process everything and then slowly getting back to the yoga. And and I think no, not having any energy to even make a cup of tea and knowing how much I used to love the yoga, for that to have been taken away from me was heartbreaking. And I, it was almost that feeling of, you know, I got to the point where I thought, God, I will, I will never, ever forsake yoga meditation again because there were times when I didn't have energy to even sit up straight and, and meditate. Um, and now to be able to do that again, to feel my body able to sustain, you know, a, a yoga practice, it just feels like the biggest gift. And And I've learned to rest. And I've learned to listen to my body, whereas before I would just push through everything. Now I know that if I'm starting to feel tired, I stop. And I balance my, my weeks. I, um, I've just started doing some work again. And I really am spreading out the workshops, whereas before I was maybe doing two or three workshops a week, which is just before I had the collapse. 
now it's one a month. <laughs> That'll be fine. Thank you very much. Basically, it's all it's self care, isn't it? But then I think it goes deeper than that. It's soul care. It's really getting back in touch with my soul, with my spirit, like why I'm on this planet, and and starting to follow my heart again. And I think more than anything, I've just taken the pressure off myself. And and if I don't achieve anything in one day, that's okay. It's that, that's how it is because I've had a whole year of not achieving anything really. So it sounds it sounds sort of terrible and wonderful all at once. It sounds like I feel so so sad that it happened and that you were under so much pressure and that it was so tough for you. And at the same time, it feels like an amazing gift that you've had this opportunity to stop and to reconnect and to start putting pieces back in as they feel right to, to put them back in. Of course, I'm wondering... For so someone listening, they may think they may very well be thinking, "Well, I just can't, <laughs> just can't switch everything off." And then, you know, it, it, the sort of have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again thing? You know, that's sort of what you've done with your life. Yeah. For a lot of people, they can't just turn it all off. They've got a job, they've got a family, they've got mortgage to pay. They, you know. It, it, They could maybe think about taking a couple of bits out, but that's about as much as they can contemplate. Are they they right? Is it impossible for most people to switch it all off and switch it back on again? Do you have to have this kind of moment of breakdown, of chronic fatigue to to make it happen? Can you do this more, more gently than you've done it in a way? I was the person who said it's not possible to stop. So I was the person who said, um, I can't slow down. I can't drop that. Um, you know, I, I have to bring in this amount of money. I have to help pay for the mortgage. And um, and then, you know, I, I didn't let go of anything. I was holding, I was juggling so many plates and, and trying to do so many things that I was left with no option. You know, my body decided I was going to stop. And... And I, I didn't have a choice. And um, and in a way, I was lucky that, you know, I have a husband who could support me financially and look after me and, and, you know, and family around who could support me as well. So in that sense, I was incredibly lucky because, you, because otherwise you're, you're being forced to stop and you still have that pressure of, but there's bills to pay and there's this and the other. All I know is that, each person is on their own path, aren't, aren't they? And and I think if someone had said to me, stop or you're going to have a complete collapse, I probably wouldn't have believed them. Mm. I don't know if I'd have even stopped. All I know is that for my whole life, I've been trying to save time. I've been trying to do everything really fast. I've been, you know, living off adrenaline, squeezing everything in, doing three things at once, um, you know, not cutting corners, but working hard to try and be more efficient in order to kind of cut a corner out. Um, it's all been about efficiency and time. And and then suddenly it felt like all this time that I thought I'd saved came like this huge tsunami over my entire life oh. and knocked me out flat for a whole year. And so I guess that maybe the message is you may think you can't afford to stop or let something go. 
but all those little things are building up and don't let that ha- don't let it happen to you <laughs> you know don't let that that same i was the person who said i can't i can't let go of anything i've got to keep it all going I've got to keep all those plates spinning and then i i lost you know in, in one way you could see it as i lost a whole year um i don't see it like that i think i've i've, I've sort of found so much in this whole year but I, I think we can't afford not to let go of stuff. Uh, and even if that means radically rethinking lifestyle, you know, do we need the big mortgage on the big house? Do, do our lives have to be so centered around money? You know, how can we simplify so that actually we have a better quality of life, uh, even if we have less money coming in? Because you have time, and you have you have time to to stare at the trees or stare at the clouds. Um, but like I said, I don't know. I think if someone had even told me that last year, I'm not sure if I'd have believed it. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, yeah, 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 whatever. I think unless 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 you maybe for some people, certain hard-headed perfectionists and drivers like me, you know, you have to kind of go through this horrific time in order to truly truly change to to re burn new neural pathways in your in your psyche to find this whole new way of being um i wouldn't have found it i think if i hadn't gone through this last year so what i'm hearing is a few things that firstly maybe it does take something dramatic to force us to reflect on what really matters and what we need so maybe it does and maybe for some people it it doesn't and they can find ways to loosen their attachment to a lot of the things that are keeping them in the hamster wheel. You know, I know a few people who they've had up until recently very big jobs, you know, on on the board of companies and uh they've decided before, to take a break before finding their next opportunity. They will they will return to work in three months, six months' time, but they are taking this opportunity to to take a break and to assess and to find something that is a really good fit for them. Um, and that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to chip away at the life that you have without destroying it all or throwing it all away or turning it off and turning it all back on again. But I, I do wonder if the real work isn't the taking bits out, you know, oh, well, I'm going to go home at six instead of seven, or I'm not going to answer my phone after nine. I, I think that those are things you can do, but I think that the real shift is a being shift, which is a, a, the questions you ask yourself about what's actually important. You know, what what do I actually value in my life and what are the things that I get involved in that help me to live in that way and what are the things that I get involved in that don't. So you start from the inside with those questions rather than chipping away at some of the stuff you do and putting a few boundaries in place. It can help but I'm not sure I'm not sure that that really deals with the bigger the bigger challenge of the kind of lifestyle that we're all leading this very very adrenalized long hours, hard work, energetic, go, go, go kind of life. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it has to be, I think that would be the ideal, wouldn't it, that the third option that you said where people actually 
stop and really look at what what's important what are, what are the values in my life and am i living them because i think i was aware of my values and i thought that my work embodied them but i think what i was missing out of the equation was was a really honest true what do i really really want what is really important to me and and then basing our lives around that because I just don't now I, I look at the world with such different eyes and I look at the way people work with with concern for them because I just think we're we're at so many people are at breaking point you know and we we can't keep we can't sustain this way of of working and living we have to find a way that is more balanced and and more connected to to those values you were talking about that are different for each person and and for me the nature the world to really connect back to that i think that is incredibly healing and balancing you're embarking on a new you've rediscovered yoga mm. and i know that it's helped you a lot over the last year but you're taking that to another level aren't you yeah i think because i had sort of forsaken my yoga for so long now I, I want to do everything I can just to embed it and embody it as much as possible so I'm going to do a yoga teacher training course um, in Mallorca in December which is very exciting and, and I haven't felt as excited about something in a very very long time and um, and I think sort of my, my primary reason for doing it is actually for myself I want I want to know more. I want to know why this has helped me so much. When when doctors say there's nothing I can do to help you, you're just going to have to feel all these weird symptoms and feel dreadful and just let nature take its course. Whereas this ancient yogic science can give me stuff that can make me feel better within half an hour. You know, I, and which then has to be continued. It's not like a magic bullet, but a practice that can that can bring me back to myself, that can center me and and, you know, no drugs involved, simple, free breath, body, doesn't cost anything. I, I want to understand that more. And, and then by understanding that, I want to incorporate that in my work um, through offering yoga classes, but also through using yoga in, in my kind of current workshops in a way, maybe, maybe not through sort of traditional yoga, but using some of the philosophy and the ideas behind it more fully in, in my work. I think it's so wise and yet we and, and there's a big yoga movement in the world you know but you go to the average GP practice and you just think Becky, how many ailments here could be helped by a bit of yoga and a bit of meditation no I'd say quite a lot could probably either be solved or massively alleviated um, but we don't we don't turn to it we turn to pharmaceuticals I, I, I'm excited as to what, what I'll learn, really, uh, what it will do for me and, and what I might be able to bring to other people through through this kind of new strand of knowledge. Yeah, I'm excited too. Really excited for you, but also really excited to hear um, what what you're learning about it. And I, and I love this idea that it would be integrated mm. into... Because I think that's the other thing that's important, that, you know, we can do the busy, 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 busy and then take 10 minutes to meditate or we can, or to do yoga or whatever it might be. 
or we can integrate the wisdom and the learning into everything that we do. Um, and that sounds a bit more sustainable to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and I also wonder if it's almost about teaching yoga without even telling people you're giving them yoga. Because I think as soon as you mention the word yoga or meditation, people turn off. You know, like I did when I first tried it out. It's like, nah, nah, that's not for me. Um, but actually, the tools within it, you know, if you can, if you can introduce people to them in an accessible way, how that might be able to change lives, I think is really, is really exciting. Well, it's been so fantastic talking to you. I've, I've learned a lot. <laughs> And I want to go off now. I've already meditated today, actually, but I want to go off and do some yoga now. Very good. Very before good. I get on with the rest of my day. So it would be fantastic to talk to you again. Can we catch up again in in a few months' time, and you can tell us how it's going and um, and what you've what you've been doing with with the new yoga qualification that you you're going to have very soon. I'd love that. I'll, I will share my new yogi wisdom with you. <laughs> Even more yogi wisdom than you have today. (laughs) I think it'll probably be a lot more than today, yeah. (laughs) Leandra, thank you so much. You're welcome. Been a total pleasure. It's always lovely talking to you, Blair. Wasn't she lovely? I absolutely loved listening to that interview again. And as I say, it's one of my favourites. Many of the things that Leandra said in that in that phone interview really have stayed with me this whole time and inspired me to make some changes in my own life and in my own work. More of which I'm sure I will share with you next year. But one way you can stay in touch with us and find out what's going on here at That People Thing is to sign up to the newsletter. Just go to the website at thatpeoplething.com and there is a pop-up that will pop up and you can fill in your email information and you'll get occasional emails from me letting you know about any changes and also tips, advice, articles and the free five-part article series that is exclusive to newsletter Uh, subscribers. So go and do that now. Also, please, while you're at it, while you're on the internet, hop over to iTunes and leave a review and comments um, and a star rating for this podcast. The more people that do that, the easier it is for other people to find this podcast because it pushes us up the rankings And as you know, um, people don't tend to look for page after page to find a podcast. They tend to look at the first four or five podcasts that pop up when they enter some search terms and, and then they click on one of those. So we'd love to be one of those top four or five and you can help by leaving a review. So that's about it for now. I will be back next week with another interview from the from the backlog, from the archives, another one of my favourites. But meanwhile, have a wonderful Christmas, a fantastic new year. And if you want to stay in touch, we'd love to hear from you with information about how to do that. Here's the lovely Ivy Palmer. To hear from you, you can stay in touch with us on Instagram at Punks and Suits and on our Punks and Suits Facebook page. You can also sign up to our newsletter at www.thatpeoplething.com. I'll say it again. www.thatpeoplething.com. You can also find out more about working with Mummy as a speaker, 
or as a coach on that website too. And please leave a comment and a star rating on iTunes. Please five stars before it's fine. Go ahead and do that now as it helps other people find this podcast so that they can reveal more of the part underneath their suit.